Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as a paperback and audiobook, but the ebook, oh, esteemed audience, the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some stories for older readers. For more information about that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. And we've got to get started. Can't believe my good fortune I am chatting today with none other than Linda Sarsour, uh, whose new book, We're In This Together, uh, releases this week. Or if you're listening to us after this week, it's already available. Go get it. Mm -hmm. uh, Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. I um, I have so many questions for you. Esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing their biography or their book. Why would I do that when you're right here? Uh, so if you would give an esteemed audience an overview of your background, and we'll go from there. Well, first of all, I'm very happy to be here, Rob. Uh, I am Linda Sarsour. Like you said, I'm a born and raised Brooklynite from New York. Um, that's very, very important part of my identity and explains my, my nice, heavy accent uh, from New York. And I am a Palestinian Muslim American, a daughter of immigrants, and I'm an organizer and an activist. Uh, some people call me a professional troublemaker, but I only make trouble for good things. I want people to have good things. I want people to feel safe in our country. Um, and so I have been working around issues of immigration and immigrant rights and refugee rights and racial justice, economic justice, women's rights issues for the last 20 years. And I'm a mom of three kids. And recently I just became a mother-in-law. Um, and so I feel really old. Um, so that's me. <laughs> Well, uh, congratulations on, uh, on 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 gaining a, a new child. <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely, thank you. Um, so uh, lots of lots of questions for you. I suppose the best place uh, to to dive in. Usually, we talk about you, and then we talk about the book. But in this case, since we're discussing your autobiography, we're kind of talking about one and the same, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're in this together. You've written an autobiography. It was uh, originally, we are not here to be bystanders. And this is the young readers slash middle grade edition. Is that right? That's right. So uh, I guess my first question is, um, um, what, uh, why, why, why rewrite uh, your autobiography specifically for the middle grade audience? Who is the ideal reader that we're hoping to reach? You know, Rob, over the years, I kind of gave up on adults a little bit. Um, I think oftentimes uh, adults are really set in their positions on things. They're set in their ideology. They're set on the way they look and see the world. And I believe that young people um, have an opportunity to just be a lot more open-minded, to be able to read um, and experience other people from other racial backgrounds, faith backgrounds, people who may not share my ideology and really being able to try to resonate with young people about the injustice in the world. I think young people are seeing a lot of really bad things happening, not just here in our own country, in the United States, but, but around the world. And I wanted to be able to, to, to talk to them through my own stories. And I believe that a lot of my stories will resonate with young children of immigrants or people who went to diverse public schools, public school students, people who grew up in cities. Um, and I think it would be interesting for kids who grew up in rural America to experience what it feels like for someone like me to grow up in a city like New York um, and for my parents to, to live in a place like New York City. And so for me, I was hoping to uh, use my memoir as a guide to talk to young people about hard things like racial injustice, like, um, you know, civil liberties and civil rights um, and my right to be a Muslim in America, the rights of immigrants to feel safe and the rights of LGBTQ plus people to feel safe um, in their communities. And I hope that's what happens um, after people read my book. And I hope that young people walk out of it saying, you know what, I guess we're all in this together, um, that it's not just about one community and one people that at the end of the day, you know, we can't really um, put our hopes in anybody else but ourselves. Um, and we can't believe that somebody is going to come save us but ourselves. And I hope that young people see power in themselves and are like, I'm not going to be here to, I'm not going to be a bystander. And I also know that I'm in this together and I'm going to feel hurt when someone else is hurt. And that's what I hope um, comes out of this. So if when you had uh, 
uh, been a child, you had gone to the library and seen we're in this together right there on the shelf. You picked it up and you read it, you know, five times at least. Mm -hmm. um, what difference do you think it would have made for you? And what difference are you hoping it will make for those young people who are going to discover it? You know, in America, there are um, many young Muslims that I visit all around the country. Um, a lot of Muslim community centers that I go speak at, um, trainings that I do for young people. And if I was a, a, a kid and I went into a library or I went into a bookstore and I saw this, first of all, the cover, which I think is important because you always start with the cover. You know, here you have a, a cover of a Muslim woman wearing a hijab in a superhero theme. And unfortunately, um, since the horrific attacks of 9-11, um, Muslims are never the superheroes. We are always the villains. We are always the bad people. We're always somehow connected to terrorism. So when our young people watch Hollywood or they even watch the news, oftentimes if you're seeing a story about Muslims, it's probably connected to something negative. And so for me, the book is about number one, humanizing Muslims, right? Here I am, a young Muslim kid that grew up in New York City that has a lot of similar experience to other kids, but also, you know, selfishly, like I wanted little Muslim girls to have and feel proud to pick up a book that they can see themselves in. Um, I didn't read books that I saw myself in. Um, my book that moved me growing up was the um, autobiography of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X was a black man who happened to be a Muslim. And that for me was something that connected to my heart. I watched the man, you know, evolve um, and reform his life through faith. And that was really moving to me. But I didn't see books of Muslim women um, wearing hijab or Muslim women who looked like me. So I hope that's also um, a, a purpose of the book, um, to empower young Muslim women to use their voice, to organize, to be powerful, to be unapologetic. Um, and I think it starts with the cover. So you grew up uh, in, in Brooklyn, as we've talked about, um, and your um, your father had a store, uh, Linda's, uh, your, your name's right there in the title store, and then right. you're there mm -hmm. at age 12, and you're watching your father extend credit to all of your neighbors, right? Yep. What kind of, uh, what kind of impact does that make on you? Uh, yeah. My father, um, you know, I would say even subconsciously um, was teaching me things that um, I realized so much later in life. You know, my father, I remember this so clearly. He had like a little library that was like on the left-hand side, actually facing the glass window out um, to the street with a whole bunch of marble composition books. Um, and he knew, I don't know how he knew, but it would be like a customer would come in um, and they would say, Nick, you know, this week or whatever, they'd explain something. And my dad would be like, don't worry about it. And then he would pull out a marble notebook and he would know which one it was. It was like four or five of them. And he would know that that person belonged in a particular book. And he would open the book and he would turn to a specific page. And I would notice there was a person's name at the top. And he would put 1447, you know, 1819, whatever the amount of the groceries that came out that day. And my dad's um, store was in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and it was a predominantly Black, Caribbean, Puerto Rican, um, and other Latino communities, but predominantly Black and Caribbean, and they, and also a, a very significant Orthodox Jewish community. So, for example, for many folks who don't know, some Orthodox Jews, depending on what sect of Judaism they follow, on Fridays, they cannot touch money. Um, and so sometimes you would forget a grocery or you would forget something um, that evening. So my dad would just write it in the book and they would take the bag with the groceries and they would just leave. And I thought it was really interesting. I was like, what's going on here? And then I was like, how do you remember? And then my dad's like, I don't have to remember because these people always come back and pay their, um, you know, what they owe me. And my dad taught me empathy and he taught me that sometimes people go on hard times and sometimes um, people aren't able to pay their for gro groceries or whatever the situation may be. And that was something that taught me how to treat other people. Um, and it, it and as I thought about it later on in life, as I think about, you know, fighting for a, 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 a higher living wage in America or working with labor unions or supporting union workers um, people shouldn't have to struggle. People shouldn't need a person like my father um, to just pay for basic groceries. You know, my dad had such deep relationships. He knew everybody's name and the customers. He knew people's children. He would congratulate people on, oh, congratulations on your son's wedding. Congratulations on your new granddaughter. And I'm like, how do you remember all these life moments? He's like, because they tell me. And I'm like, but I know, but there's a lot of people who come into the store. And he's like, I've been here for 40 years. 
I've raised some of these kids in this community. And so for me, my father taught me what it means to be in community and to be in community with people who don't look like you, who don't share your faith. Um, and, and that's something that I tried to carry uh, with me in my work. And it's why I wrote a book. We're in this together because my dad showed me that we are really in this together. Now, something I wonder about is that many marble books, that many um, outstanding debts. I assume sooner or later it had to have happened that somebody didn't come back and pay their debt. Um, and that um, and that never made the impression on you the other way that, hey, some of these people are, are going to run out on us. We should be more strict. We should be more careful. Or was it just always a matter of you saw the the good and that far outweighed the bad or? My dad, so I, I used to always ask my dad that. I'm like, are you sure? Because sometimes I would look in the book and there were like a page or two where you'd see that the numbers weren't crossed out. And that meant that the person didn't pay, right? And my dad would say, they would eventually come. You know, they might not have it right now, which is why they didn't come back. And I would say to my dad, but what if they never come back? And then my dad has this, his own little model, his own little saying that says, when you bless people, you will be blessed. And my dad's like, I'm good. Like I, that $20, that $40 is not something that's going to impact me. You know, my dad was a very um, successful small business owner. He was an immigrant with a fifth grade education that came to America with barely any money in his pockets. He lived in a sing, he lived in a, an apartment um, with like five other single uh, immigrant men as well who were also trying to make it. So my dad struggled when he first came to America. He really had a hard time until he got to a place where he was able to buy the small business on the corner of a street in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And so for my dad, he knows where those people are coming from. He's been there, done that. And so he's been blessed in America. He's, he's, my dad believes that he is one of the people who has lived the American dream. And so for him, for the people that never came back, it, it never um, outweighed the people that did. And it never outweighed the blessings that his the community that he was working in gave him. I mean, those people in the community, my dad never saw them as customers. He was like, these are the people that pay my mortgage. These are the people that help me give to my children. These are the people that are helping me. You know, I have a car, you know, so I, my dad just looked at the world in just a different way. And I, and, and, you know, he came from living under a military occupation. So for everything, for my dad, it was a blessing, everything. I mean, he saw he he the most basic things that we take for granted. My dad thought they were like the most amazing things. He's like, look in America, like our kids go to free public school, and then like that for him was like such a like he it was a dream come true. He couldn't believe it that in America we have free public school. Um, anything that my dad, you know, you know, at the time this was funny. At the time in New York, water was free. Um, and, uh, so now, as you know, we pay for water in, in New York and my dad would tell me, he's like, look in America, the water is free. And so my, my dad just really was a simple man that felt like he lived a good life. And we lived, you know, if I compared myself now, as I traveled the country and the world, you know, we were probably lower middle-class. I mean, we lived in sunset park, Brooklyn, you know, um, and I, you know, we, we lived a, you know, a good life, um, but it wasn't, you know, a lavish life. But I thought it was lavish and my dad thought it was lavish because if you compare where my parents came from to their experience in the United States, it was for them blessings upon blessings. And so my dad always kind of taught me like, you know, it's not about material things. It's about, are you happy? Are you content? Are you safe? Um, and those are the things that were the indications for my father of living a good life. I know you uh, and, and um, you're, you're one of seven children, right? So you and your siblings were all uh, donated to the program to save the children. Mm -hmm. um, and you would ask your parents, why doesn't everybody have what we have? And they would told you because God is testing your character, your faith mm -hmm. and resilience. He gives some to you and you give to others. Do you still feel that that's true? And does that motivate some of the work that you do now? Oh, 100%. I mean, growing up, my dad was um, the guy that watched television and saw these commercials for Save the Children, and we would watch it. And because of the way that our father raised us, we would be so horrified by this idea that here we were playing with toys, we had a TV to watch, we went to public school, we had friends, you know, we had this, we had joy in our lives growing up, and we play outside with our friends, and we had shoes, and just the basics of life, and to see that there were children around the world that did not have what we had. And my father let us sponsor um, a, a, a young girl. Um, and, and my dad said that she was our sister and that we were responsible for her. So of course, our family are young. You know, I was the oldest and I was maybe like, I don't know, maybe 10 at this time. And that means that I had siblings who were six, six siblings who were younger than I. So imagine a 10-year-old with six siblings who were younger, 
which was a lot of kids to have um, all at the same time. Um, and my my um, question and my sisters also were like, but why do we have things and they don't have things? You know, what's different about this, you know, young girl? And and my dad would say, because um, in this in the world that we live, we're all here to be tested about what we would do with the blessings that we have. So my dad would teach us like you have, right? You, you're saying you're happy, you have, you have, you have. Yes. Okay. What are you going to do with the things that you have? And especially the extra things that you have. And then the idea, my dad's concept was that you give it to others and then that you will then be blessed again. And so that is my work. I believe that I feel quite privileged, um, even though I've been through pretty horrific things in this country based on some of my activism work. But overall, I am a very privileged person. Um, I feel uh, that sometimes, you know, I remember one time Bernie Sanders, who many of you know, ran for president, said something that really kind of encompassed what I believe, fighting for someone you don't know. And I think that um, at some, in some sense, that's what I want to do, fighting for someone that I don't know um, to share whatever blessings I have. If I have rights, then I want to fight for someone else to have rights in hopes that we all have rights. And it, it, it is a concept that comes from these young interactions with you know parents um both my parents were people who uh, also believed like your neighbors can't go hungry like you can't go to bed at night knowing that your neighbor is hungry or that a child like our next door neighbor's mom didn't come home from work on time and we're eating after school my mom was not going to let our next door neighbor not eat because his mother had to stay an extra two hours at work my mom was making sure that our immediate neighbors who were our friends also had what we had and my parents didn't really have much. Um, they had a small little townhouse in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, um, where, uh, as you know, nine of us were living. And one of the things that people said about our house was that that was that they noticed about my house. Number one, our house used to be a banana boat color. It was like the brightest yellow house that you've ever seen in New York City. So that was the first thing that people noticed. The second thing people noticed is our door was never locked. And you would think that would be crazy. It's New York City. But my parents during the day did not believe in locking the front door. They wanted the kids in the community to have access. They wanted us to go outside, come back inside. And everybody knew that they could come. You know, they were bored. They wanted to, you know, ha have a conversation with someone. My mom was ready to go. My dad, um, unfortunately, would be at work most of the time. But my mom had this open door policy. Everybody was welcome into our house. And so that's how I think about activism and the work that I do. Everybody's welcome. Um, everybody has the opportunity to come um, and to fight for somebody that they don't know. And sometimes people come to fight for themselves too, which is just as important. So um, my upbringing really shaped who I am today. You mentioned the uh, the banana house, the banana boat house, and something that really uh, captured my imagination uh, is that you write uh, in the book that to this day, I'm still embarrassed. The rest of our block looked a lot more normal. So I know you were very embarrassed by the by the Bright House. Um, <laughs> but it, it's hard for me to imagine you, future activist, who's going to stand in front of 1.2 million women marching through Washington, being embarrassed by, by what the neighbors might think. And you, you're still embarrassed by the house to this day. Is that accurate? I mean, I want you to imagine a, a very typical New York City street, lots of, you know, beautiful brick brownstones. And here is my house in the middle of a typical Brooklyn street with beautiful brick townhouses and, and brownhouses. And here is my house, hot yellow siding. And to be clear, when my parents bought the house, it looked pretty similar to the houses on the street when my parents bought it. It had a couple of chipped bricks on the outside. It was a bit of an older house. And my mom picked that siding. So it wasn't like we bought a house that was already yellow. My mom decided that yellow was going to be the color. And, you know, when people people would say, oh, uh, or are you going to Linda's house? They didn't say Linda's house. They, were, they said they were, they were going to the banana house. That was the name of my house at the time. That was the neighborhood name for my house, the banana house. And, you know, when you're a kid, like, look, I was a regular kid. I was embarrassed because um, I was like, really, mom, like banana. That's really what you thought when you went to the siding place you had grays and and all these other neutral tone and that's the color that you went for it I couldn't even believe that there was a siding that was that color I mean it's it was and you know so so I'm a normal person and I was really shy about my banana house um, and when I think back about it I'm not gonna lie to you I'm still a little shy thinking about it yeah but surely I mean at this point um I like to imagine because you have been um, through you, you, you've had 
uh, so much of a negative reception of some of the things you you've said and done in public, like you know saying people have rights for some reason people want to get angry at you for 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 saying that, but th th that's where we live. Um, I would like to think that one upside of that would be you could wear anything you want, you could do uh, if it's your off time, if you know mm -hmm. if you want to sing the most obnoxious song everybody hates <laughs> as loud as you possibly can because it's your time. I would think you would be beyond uh, worrying about what other people think, but it sounds like maybe that's not the case. Yeah, when you're a kid, so that, that that banana house was a lot, Rob. Like, it's hard to explain. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, my mom wore hijab. Like, we were definitely very well-known Palestinian Muslim kids. People, our mom spoke Arabic to us. Like, all the things you would think I should be embarrassed that were a lot of children of immigrants, you know, kind of are a little uncomfortable with, especially if their friends are not, you know, of their culture. That wasn't me. I was just embarrassed of that banana house. Um, and I think that humanized me a little bit because I was one of those kids that actually didn't care. I was quite confident even as a, even as a young kid um, growing up. But that house, my mom took that house to a whole nother level. I mean, it's it's hard to explain, but it's it was like it was like a almost almost to the point where at nighttime it was almost like glow in the dark. That's how like hot yellow it was. And thank God, just so you know, about 10 years ago. When I was a whole full-blown adult, 10 years ago, I was 31 years old. My parents changed the siding finally. And now the siding is great. And I said to my mom, I'm sure this very color was available 25 years ago when you decided that yellow was going to be the color of the house. But so thank God I am uh, slowly healing uh, from the uh, banana house, uh, especially now that it's not a banana house anymore. <laughs> well, I appreciate you revisiting your job. <laughs> Uh, another story that that uh, that I just love uh, is because you have your, your your siblings, you're organizing chore day. You're the oldest, and you get everybody to do a chore, but but you, right? And that's when your mother realizes you're a good organizer. How long did you pull that scam? Actually, I, I did pretty well. I think I might have been able to get through that probably for about maybe two years or so. Like I was going through it. I mean, I was I was doing really well until my, one day my mom was like, "Wait a minute, what's your job?" And I was like, what do you mean? My job is to make sure that they do their job and they were doing the job. And I told my mom, I was like, at the end of the day, as long as whatever needs to be done is being done, isn't that the goal? And then my mom was really confused because she knew that I, I was right. But she also knew it wasn't fair um, that I was just on the same level as my siblings. I mean, my siblings and I are either a year or two apart maximum. So we're all like generally around the same age. And that was me since a young, a young kid, I had, I had siblings younger than me. I would, I would cut up a piece of loose leaf paper and I would write living room. I would write bathroom. I'd write kitchen. I'd write whatever the different rooms were in the house. And then I would put them in like a little cup or inside of a little plastic bag and I shake them around and I'd have all my siblings pull one out. Um, and then whatever one you pulled out is the one that you were responsible for. And there were only six, not seven. And sometimes if, if it was, um, uh, or it was five because my little brother wasn't um, really um, involved or probably was the one that was making the mess, but it would basically be minus one, which is me. Um, and I would be walking around like, don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. So I was like a supervisor and an organizer. And my mom thought it was the most hilarious thing because my thing was like, isn't what needs to be done and getting done. And it was getting done. And um, but eventually my sisters also caught on and with my mom's unfortunate help. And then I had to start helping out a little bit more. Um, but you, you take that with you forever. It's like, okay, well, I can get people to, you know, for, for, for the purposes of good, but I can get people to, to fall in line and, and, and organize and, and get everybody together to, to bring about something. Right. Yep. I mean, you know, Rob, and, and I say this with all humility, but um, that's what a good organizer is able to do, right? Because there's a difference also between people who say we're an activist versus an organizer. An activist is someone who cares deeply about something and shows up places to support, to help, to be at a rally, um, to provide a skill that they may have. An organizer is actually someone who's organizing people who are activists. So you're able to organize people who are passionate about something to a larger goal. So that means, for example, I organize rallies or I organize um, larger events or I organize campaigns um, and being able to inspire people to come and say, what are you good at? And what are you good at? And what are you good at? Oh, the, you're good at these things. Well, guess what? We need all those skills and we're going to all come together and we're going to produce something amazing. Um, and that's what a skilled organizer does, that you're able to bring people in have them see a vision and all feel like they're a part of it in some way. Um, and that's what, when you see 
these big productions know that there's an organizer somewhere. And of course there are many organizers, but there's always that one organizer that really keeps everybody together, right? That there's somebody that is responsible for the larger kind of vision. Um, and that's when you know you're working with a, a good person, a person that knows what they're doing. So at one point your, your, your plan is to become an English teacher. Um, which I imagine your English teacher heart must be absolutely delighted that you're here talking about your second book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, 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 I, I assume, it, I, did you always dream of, of one day writing a book? Was that somewhere in there? I was always into poetry. So that was kind of what I was mostly um, into. And, you know, I feel like it's funny because I feel like a little sad that I'm not um, an, an English teacher because that was really my dream. Uh, but I am very fortunate to have an opportunity to live vicariously through my children. My son is a special ed um, English language teacher uh, in high school here in New York City. Um, and he is beloved by his students and he is working with uh, predominantly young people of color, mostly black and Latino students um, in New York, where some of them have different levels of, you know, um, kind of issues. Some of them are behavioral issues. Others are related to mental health issues. Others are related to diagnoses like ADHD and other types of um, attention deficit disorders. And that was my dream. I wanted to um, teach young people who often our society says, these kids aren't going anywhere. It's a waste of time to even try to teach these kids anything. Um, and I believe that those young people, if given the opportunity, if given care, given love, given things that are interesting, um, that they could actually flourish in this world. And my son has the same philosophy as me. And so he specifically uh, studied um, to be a special ed teacher, um, which a lot of people don't want to be in New York City. And my son, I was like, I want to be the thing that nobody else wants to do. Um, and he's having a wonderful time. And so I'm excited to be able to hear the stories of his students and watch him build curriculum that is infused with hip hop and infused with kind of brands and things that he knows those young people will understand to kind of bring them in, into larger conversations around literature, around even seeing music as a means of storytelling, a lot of these young people love music and especially hip hop. And my son has realized that oftentimes hip hop is about storytelling. So he's taking them back to the days of, you know, Tupac and Run DMC and Biggie Smalls, because he believes that old hip hop is really um, was a storytelling mechanism for young black men to tell the stories of what it meant to grow up black and grow up poor um, in places like New York and Philly and Detroit. And that concept is resonating with the students because a lot of them have experienced the same type of um, environment, same type of, of living. And, and the, the school has noticed this change in a lot of these young people, this, this, this I want to be in class mentality, which was not in fact the case prior uh, to, you know, my son taking over this particular class. So yeah, I'm not an English teacher, but I, at least my son is. Um, and it makes me feel happy to know that um, he kind of said, listen, maybe you didn't fulfill your dream, but I got you. I'm going to I'm going to go on over here and 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 do it. And he's having a wonderful time. I was uh, amused because you uh, I, I, I read and I heard you talk elsewhere about uh, wanting to be Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. So that was the movie that inspired me. <laughs> too long since I'd heard that song. And that's literally the plot of the movie, right? She goes in and she's teaching, I think, Bob Dylan lyrics and yep. he's teaching Biggie and hip hop. But there you are. <laughs> that's right. Well, listen, I told you, I said, I, I, my son said, don't worry, mom, I got this. And so I feel happy to live vicariously through my son. Uh, so what happens on your path, on your way to becoming an English teacher? I know you get married at 17. You've got three young kids there in your 20s. So plenty on your plate. When do you turn to activism and, and, and to organizing and to the, what, what's ultimately going to be your career? You know, Rob, there's no one in this world that you can go to a young child that says, when I grow up, I want to be an activist. Um, that's just not a thing that people dream to be. It's something that you kind of end up in at some point in your life. And for me, um, it was definitely not something that I ever imagined myself being as a career. Like, of course, I grew up Palestinian, so I knew that there was injustice in the world. I, grew, I went to a predominantly all-Black high school in New York, so I knew there were bad things happening around me, um, but I wasn't like that was what I was going to do. I was going to fix the world. I just wanted to be a high school English teacher. So I was a college student. Um, and then a very horrific event, as you know, happened. And I know for a lot of middle grade readers who will read my book, they were not born when this happened. And it's it, it's it's an opportunity for me to also 
used my book as a way to tell a story about a horrific event that happened um, in our country that many of these young people were not here to experience and to be able to share an experience, not just of any American, but a Muslim American at that time. Because I think that there's a story that's missing about not only did this terrorist attack impact us all as Americans and impacted New Yorkers as a whole, and of course, thousands of our fellow Americans died during that attack, but a lot of people don't know the story about what happened after that horrific attack and specifically what happened to Muslim communities and people who were perceived to be Muslim. And so I was, you know, a college student. I walk out into my college campus on this Tuesday morning. My my uh, chemistry professor was a very strict older man who said no one's allowed to have any electronics. And, you know, nobody really had electronics back in those days, but there were a couple of people. It's very strict about that. And no answering phone, no beepers, none of that. All of a sudden, his phone's ringing off the hook and it's in his pocket. And he's really like astounded by his own phone because it never rang. Obviously, I've had him, I had him a previous semester. And all of a sudden he picks up the phone, um, which never happened. And he just alarmingly leaves the classroom. And so all of my fellow students are like, what's going on here? 15 minutes later, he never comes back. So we were like, something must be wrong. So then we walk out into the college campus. We are right um, across Manhattan. So I'm still on the Brooklyn side. And all of a sudden I walk outside to a flurry of burned paper that is falling from the sky, little pieces of burned paper that had literally flown over, the wind had carried all the way from the Manhattan side. So I could see the towers. Like, and you know, of course, as people don't remember, especially young people, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have ways to get kind of up-to-date information about what's happening around us. Usually these days, if something bad happens or you think something bad happens, you run to the internet and then the internet tells you everything. Well, we didn't have cell phones um, and not a lot of people had cell phones back in 2001. And we didn't have like those flat screen TVs at my college. Like there was just no way to know. So I went up to a security officer and I said, hey, what's going on? What's this is, you know, it was just so eerie, like a nightmare was about to unfold. And he said, I don't know. All I know is that an airplane hit a building in Manhattan. So of course I'm like, okay, an airplane hit a building, that sounds really terrible. But I tried not to get my mind to go towards like, oh, this is a big terrorist attack. I, th I said, maybe an airplane was running, you know, flying low and maybe it, you know, hit a building and that's really terrible. But then all of the public transportation in New York City ceased. So I had to walk home from my college campus, which was about a two hour walk. And when I got to the community that I'm from, which is a predominantly Muslim community, Muslim owned businesses, you know, there's a mosque on the main street. Everything was closed and it really, really didn't sit with me well. I was like, well, why are the businesses closed? Like, this is really weird. Why are the Muslim businesses closed? And that's when then my mind started going different places. I was like, oh no. I was like, I hope this is not like some terrorist attack type thing. And I know they're going to blame the Arabs and the Muslims just based on the Hollywood movies that I've watched <laughs> where Muslim men are, are the ones perceived to be the you know perpetrators. And then I walked all the way to my mom's house who was watching my my children at the time while I was in college and I walked in and my mom was running out of the house without her hijab and hijab for folks um, who don't know is this religious scarf that I'm wearing. My mom also wore one, but she wasn't wearing one. And she jumped into her Lincoln Navigator to go pick up my brother at the time. And it was still like 12 o'clock in the at noontime. My brother doesn't get out of school to three o'clock. And I said to her, where are you going without your hijab? And she's like, we can't wear it right now. And I was like, what is going on here? So I walked in to my, um, uh, my mom's living room. And then I see my son who's about two years old. And he's like, mommy, come see the fire, fire, fire. And I'm like, I sat in front of the TV. And of course, that's when I started seeing the headlines and realized that it was Muslim terrorists who unfortunately were the perpetrators of this terrorist attack. And then just days later, after the horrific attack and people in New York, and of course, around the country and around the world are mourning all these families that are still looking for loved ones. Some of them were either confirmed um, dead or for we, some, some for weeks didn't know where their families were. People were missing at some point. Um, women started coming to our mosque in full-blown tears, um, saying that somebody, some people came to their homes and took their either sons or took their husbands. And I was like, what is going on here? What are these people? Why, why would somebody just come to your house and take your loved one? And then I witnessed it for myself in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, where there was a raid on an apartment building where they um, literally were asking men to come out of the building. And I watched them come out of the building, lay them out. They laid the men out on their bellies on the ground and um, their children and families were watching through the windows. And it was just a horrifying experience for me. And so I immediately something kind of 
clicked in me to say to our imam, which is our religious leader at the mosque, I said to him, listen, he said, listen, I'm from Egypt. I'm an immigrant. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know who how to help these people. You know, I'm not familiar with the, you know, United States systems. And so we started looking for attorneys and, and folks. And at the time, almost in the first couple of months after 9-11, Brooklyn Law School had like a, a legal clinic. And so they started trying to help people find their loved ones, locate loved ones in different federal prisons across the Northeast. Um, and I got to visit some of these uh, detention centers, one in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and they're just a horrible place, just really unsanitary. No one would want their loved ones there. And a lot of these people, if I would, I would even go as far as to say all of the people that at least I worked with, not a single one was ever convicted of any sort of terrorism, a lot of the only violations that they had were that they had like overstayed their visa. So they had some kind of immigrant immigration violations. People were fleeing political persecution, um, fleeing war and conflict. They were fleeing poverty and really came to America to try to get a better life for them and their families. And here they were, they were leaving these police states and these dictatorships to come to a country that wanted to blame them for something that had nothing to do with them. I mean, horrible people did this. And these immigrants in my communities had nothing to do with these horrible people. And again, so that really, that was my radicalizing moment. So that was the moment where I was like, this is not okay. And I'm going to start helping these families. And I started as a translator, translating between attorneys and families and going with people to detention centers as a translator. And then I decided that something was much bigger here um, and there was more systemic issues. There was something like it wasn't just about each individual person. There was a larger problem here. And I became an organizer and an activist and doing press conferences and letting people tell their stories and working with government officials, working with uh, you know members of city council, members of the state legislators, members of Congress. Um, and then I found myself uh, at the Arab American Association of New York, which was a social service agency. And eventually became its executive director. Um, and then, as they say, then the story went on from there. So why at 38, I assume uh, you're going to do um, another 40, 50 years of amazing work. Uh, and then you'll have to write uh, your, your second biography, or maybe you'll be on your third by then. Um, why, uh, why at 38 is it time to write your, your life story? So I don't want to be grim, Rob, but I'm going to tell you the truth about why I wrote my book, because I've been asked this question by regular, you know, not even just in interviews, but people like that know me. They're like, why would you write a memoir at 38? Like you didn't I mean, you didn't do that. I mean, I did a lot of work for a 38 year old, but I still, like you said, hopefully have a whole life ahead of me of doing other work um, and, and having other accomplishments and also just life stuff. Like I'm a mother-in-law now. That's not in my book. At some point, I hope to be a grandma. I want to be able to share what that experience is like. The reason why I wrote my, my memoir at 38 is because when I was 37, um, which was um, almost about, you know, 17 years into the work that I was doing, unfortunately, um, this, I, my profile was raised exponentially in like a little bit of time. So as a co-chair of the Women's March on Washington, which, you know, became a, a one of the if it, actually in America, it is the still the largest single day protest in American history. So nobody has been able to organize something larger than the Women's March. And I was one of the co-chairs, which meant that I was one of the four representatives of the march. So I'm not a person that's easily forgotten. Like I have a very distinct look about me. Um, and I was, uh, you know, my picture was everywhere. I was on I was in the media and I was talking about justice and I was talking about anti-fascism and I was talking about being anti-racist and I was calling, you know, people to, you know, I was calling people co to come to the floor, to, to, to be in unity and to, to, to stand up against, you know, issues um, impacting women and black people and, Im and immigrants and refugees and so on and so on. And next thing you know, I'm the target um, of the right wing in America, target of like Trump supporters and conservative Republicans and you know, just people who just don't align with my values. Right. And it was to the point where um, it wasn't just, you know, people criticizing me on the Internet, which is fine. And I welcome that. And I, I don't think that I'm always right. And I don't think I'm perfect. Like, and I think I'm a person with positions that could be debated and maybe I still will believe in them, but that 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 people still have a right to say they disagree with what I have to say. And so that was never a problem for me. But then when you're threatening me, right, when you're putting my home address on the Internet, um, when you are um, 
when I have FBI agents that have to come to my house to notify me that uh, somehow they found some credible information that um, I could have been part of an assassination um, or, you know, showing up to events in places like Tempe, Arizona with grown men standing outside of a Sheraton hotel where I'm speaking with guns that were taller than I. Um, same thing happened to me um, in in uh, Florida, um, in South Florida. Like it was just, I got to a point, Rob, where I was like, look, if I don't get myself together and tell my own story, I may not be here to tell my story. And then the media would have to tell my story. And then the headlines would have to tell my story. And then you know what? The people who don't align with me are going to have to tell my story. And I just wasn't going to let that happen. I wanted my family, my children who sacrificed a lot because I wasn't home. My children were raised really by their father and their grandparents because I was on the field. I was trying to fight for a country that they deserved. And so I didn't, I wanted my children to be able to pick up a book and say, no, this is who my mom is. And this is who my mom was. So I had this weird, dark feeling in my mind and my heart that if I live today, I might not live tomorrow. I might not be here next year. And um, so for me, this was kind of an ode to my family and really to my community. There wasn't really a lot of Muslim books out there written by Muslims that were about this um, idea that a Muslim can be a leader of a right of a civil rights movement in America, that there was a woman in our community who is unapologetically Muslim and wears hijab and is progressive and is fighting for the rights, not of not just of Muslims, of others. Um, and that's the book that I wanted to leave. So the idea was I'm writing a book to leave behind at the age of 38 years old. And so I'm blessed to still be here. So I'm 42 years old now. I'm, I'm talking to you, Rob, and I feel very blessed. I do not take life for granted because I've seen things that ordinary people in America have not experienced. And um, and there are the many moments where you thought you weren't going to go home to your family. And I'm here and I'm with my family. And so this book for me um, was, uh, it was hard to write. Let's just say that because I was writing it not for the reasons that other people write memoirs. I was writing it like I was trying to like hustle to write a book because I was like, what if I don't finish the book? Um, and it took me a little while to write it because as you know, I'm an organizer. So it's not this, I'm not a, I'm not an author. I'm not a writer. That's not what I do. I'm a person that has real work. I mean, not not to say that writing is not real work, but I had like really important work and a time that I believed America was living under full-blown fascism. I mean, I, I, I know people may not agree with that, and I respect people's opinion, but as a Muslim American and a member of a marginalized community, I was really afraid for my community under a Trump administration. I watched people in my community separated from their families when Donald Trump announced the Muslim ban. I got to see the horror that young Muslims felt not knowing what is to come in our country. Um, and so again, I was working, but I was always like, I got I to finish this book. Um, and I'm grateful that I was able to do that. And now I'm grateful that I can take my memoir and make it accessible to young people. I think young people, we sometimes don't believe in their capacity to understand hard issues. And I believe in them. I believe that they are, you know, people say young people are the future. I don't believe that. I believe young people, young people are now, they are my leaders right now. I think they they see things we don't see. And one of the things that they've taught me, um, this kind of age group of like early high school, even late middle school is the planet. I was never someone that really thought much about environmental justice and, and the planet. But young people have told me like, listen, you could fight for justice all you want, but if you don't have a planet to live on, that's all not going to matter. And they're right. And so for them, they have really helped me um, shape also my intersectional activism to connect that to the to issues of environment um, and climate, which is a lot for me. Um, and it was just beautiful to have young people stop me and say, this is where I need you to be. This is where I need you to to to, to lend your voice. Um, so I'm I'm glad to have a book that I could um, speak to young people directly. Well, you've um, done so much at this point and had a direct impact that you can feel and see. Does it ever occur to you when you're um, uh, receiving death threats and other uh, unimaginable horrors? I'm sure we can't even get into because uh, that's. Um, does it ever you ever think, well, I've done it. I, this is enough. Let me be with my family now. Let me pull back. And uh, you have my book. You have the work that I've done. And for the next uh, 38 years, I'm just going to go be Linda over here uh, and mind my business. Does that does that temptation ever come to you? I'm not going to lie. If it's crossed my mind um, once or twice, I think the, the the it's just something it's hard to explain. It's almost like how my DNA is made up. Um, you know, for example, I'll give you an example. In 2020, 
here we are in a full-blown global pandemic. Um, you know, I'm from New York. New York was in just a horrible state. I mean, we had about a thousand people on average dying per day um, of COVID. Um, I lived in between two hospitals. All I heard was ambulance sirens all day, every day. And it was just an ominous time to live in New York. And then one day I got a call from uh, Benjamin Crump, who's a very um, well-known attorney here that represents families who lost their children to police violence and other you know, vigilante violence or just discrimination in general. And he called me and my friend up and said, hey, what's the problem? Where are you? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm at home because there's a global pandemic. And he said, there's a girl, a woman, a young woman in Louisville, Kentucky named Brianna Taylor, who was murdered by the Louisville Metro Police Department. She was an EMT worker during a global pandemic, and she was murdered in her apartment. And now that was March when she was murdered, but I got the call in May that she was murdered. And for me, which is, this is part of my work, I work on police violence cases across the country. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't know about Brianna Taylor. And I'm sitting around and we, me and my friend are like, wait a minute, what do you what, like? We just can't. We just heard that a young 26 year old black woman was murdered by the Louisville Metro Police Department. Like, what were we going to do with that? And believe it or not, Rob, we picked up our bags and we moved for four months to Louisville, Kentucky to organize for the family of Breonna Taylor. We organized rallies. We organized against the Louisville Metro Police Department. We organized civil disobedience. We had um, we were literally arrested. 87 of us were arrested outside the home of Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, charged with felonies um, based on uh, a loophole in a law that's supposed to be for domestic violence perpetrators. I mean, we just went through a lot. And my point is to say that I'm the kind of person, if I see injustice, I just can't sit back. I just can't sit and read about it or try to just do like an online, like say I'm horrified by it. I just got to be there. Same thing happened when Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri. I never heard of Ferguson, Missouri. I didn't even know there was such a place called Ferguson. I knew St. Louis, Missouri, but I had no idea there was a place called Ferguson. I'm a Brooklyn mom with a son. I got up and literally went to Ferguson, Missouri. For me, there's a thing that says, like in my heart that tells me you got to get up and fight. Um, and I really have, um, and maybe, I don't know what it is. My mom says it's like an overcompensation of courage. Cause my mom thinks sometimes that I'm a little reckless. Like, and I say to my mom, cause she does, she's like, I can't believe like she's seen photos of me, like going up against like riot police or look, or looking straight, talking to like a police officer in full on gear. And I'm just like, mom, I'm not afraid. I'm just not afraid. There's, I don't know what it is, but I'm not afraid. And I think that in every generation, there's a, always some of us, there's always a group of people who are like that. Um, and I hope to be that in our generation. I just want to teach young people that we have to fight for ourselves. Um, and we have to defend our communities, that these young people like Tamir Rice, like Mike Brown, like Trayvon, like, like and I'm actually wearing it. This is Trayvon Martin. Um, and that these young people deserve to live safely in this country. And they deserve that. Um, they deserve access to high quality public education. They deserve to have parents who have, you know, jobs where they could thrive. And, and there's just something about me that just gets up. Like, I just can't, I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be able to function if I knew something horrific happened and I wasn't there to give my skills, give my resources. You know, one of the things that I do around these campaigns is I, I organize direct action. I decide who the target is, who's the person that has or the people that have the most influence around the issue of justice, who can bring accountability and try to organize pressure campaigns to make sure those people. And I'm actually doing that right now. On Thursday, I'm going to um, Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and for years, a team of folks has been working around Black women in Kansas City, Kansas, around the Kansas City Police Department who have... Um, been forced into involuntary servitude to police officers in the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department, um, you know, the sexual assault, rape, you name it, it's horrifying, the whole story. And for many years, people didn't believe these Black women. Um, they, the, the community covered it up, meaning the police department covered it up, you know, they, um, they just let these uh, police officers terrorize this community. And if the women didn't um, uh, oblige, they would say to them, okay, so that we are, you know, they would, they would basically um, threaten them with planting evidence or putting them away or detaining them for things that, of course, they did not do. And make a long story short, um, that's not something that I, that I was going to let fly. Um, and so working with Team Rock and, of course, my friends at Until Freedom and others and local organizers and, you know, groups like the Midwest Innocence Project and others, 
to get the Department of Justice to intervene um, in this case. And guess what? An investigation happens and uh, former detective Rob Golubsky has been arrested. Um, three other police officers have been arrested. The other three just got arrested this week, actually, because the women weren't lying. It was true. Um, and so for me, again, like I hear these horror stories and I don't want to just read a headline. There has to be something that has to be done. And that's just who I am. And which is why a lot of people don't like me, um, especially police officers don't like me very much. Um, people in power don't like people like me because they know that when we are able to organize people together, when you're able to understand how the system works, and be able to bring accountability to people who have been impacted by injustice, you become a very powerful person without even knowing it. And people don't like ordinary citizens like me who become powerful enough to hold very powerful people um, with influence accountable. Um, and so that's me, Rob. I can't help it. How do you fight uh, back against uh, being discouraged? Like something I always go back to was after uh, four years of, of, of President Donald Trump, people seeing not theoretical. What is this guy like in the office? We know it now. We know he lies openly. We, we watched him draw with a permanent marker. We know it's just a craziness. Uh, and then 3 million more people vote for him the next election. When you see that, um, for me, I, I look at that and I said, well, now, what has, how how am I going to make an impact on these people that he himself didn't convince them not to, not to vote for him after his behavior over four years? When you see something like that, or we just had a recent election where Senator Todd Young of Indiana, who I have a personal grudge against because he came here after a school shooting and gave us thoughts and prayers after taking millions from the NRA, and he just got reelected by a higher margin than before. And I see that, and it just sometimes feels a little bit hopeless. How do you combat against that and, and keep yourself and, and, and the people that you're organizing from, from falling into hopelessness and despair? You know, I tell people all the time, especially when I think about elections in this country and democracy in general, that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And I remember something that Dr. King said. Uh, if you remember the speech that Dr. King gave the night before he was assassinated, he said, I see the promised land. I may not get there with you. Um, and, and it was almost like he knew that his life was about to end at some point um, soon. And so I say to people that I also see the promised land and I understand that sometimes you and I, Rob, may not see the fruits of our labor. Um, and even if we live long lives, we might not see the fruits of our labor. And that doesn't stop us, nor did it stop people before us from planting seeds towards the type of country that we want to live in. You know, when we look at every generation, somebody before us sacrificed for us to be in the spaces that we are in today. You know, when I think about even the right to vote, we went from. Uh, only white men being able to vote in America to then white women being able to vote in America, then to black men being able to vote. Then we went to, you know, black women and immigrants. And it's like every generation, more people were added. And at some point, there might have been people fighting for the rights of women to vote, rights of black women to vote, rights of immigrants that guess what? They themselves never voted because they might have passed or something might have happened before that law was passed. So I always say to people, I don't get discouraged because I know that whatever you and I are doing, whatever we're saying at this time, whatever we're writing is going to have an impact so that one day when what we want happens, we could say that we were a part of that, or at least feel like we contributed to, to that. And there were, and especially in this recent election, yes, there were times where people like Young were reelected, but there were also times where people like, for example, Arizona um, just elected um, uh, Katie Hobbs and their entire legislator are Democrats now. I mean, not their entirely, but the majority of the legislators Democrat, they, their attorney general won her race as well. Um, we saw more young people around the country win a public office. Um, uh, we had, for example, in Georgia, while we had some sad losses like Stacey Abrams, uh, we also had the biggest Muslim delegation to ever go to a state legislator in one election. I mean, we're talking about Muslims in Georgia. Um, four Muslims went all at the same time and won legislative seats in both the House and the Senate uh, in Georgia, one of whom is a young uh, Palestinian Muslim American young woman with a hijab um, that I was able to just see this past weekend in Georgia. And this is a young organizer that also got up one day and said, I'm going to organize. And she then decided that she wanted to run for office. Her first time running for office in Gwinnett County in Georgia, the largest county in Georgia. And she won her first round. Like this is the first time she ever ran for office. So there were a lot of glimpses of hope around the country. So we might not get them in all 50 states, but to focus on places where we did win. You know, we had um, great wins for Muslim Americans. And these are progressive Muslim Americans because 
one thing that I will be very clear about, Rob, is I don't support people because they're black or because they're Muslim or because they're Latino or because they're women, because I want to support people that align with my values and principles. And these people I'm telling you about are people who are pro-immigrant, pro-women, pro-refugee, you know, pro-economy and getting people, you know, more economic relief. And they're winning um, in places you wouldn't imagine. We had Muslims win in Texas. I mean, it's just, there's too much hope for me to focus on those that are grim, like the youngs of the world, um, you know, or like looking at Florida, like I don't want to worry about Florida right now. Um, I want to be able to allow us to celebrate the times where we are doing the right thing or when things go the right way. So I say to people, don't be discouraged focus on when we do win. And let's look at why we won in those places and see how we can replicate that in other parts of the country. And also, Rob, we're never going to convince everybody. My goal in life is not to make sure that all Americans are all of a sudden going to all be a bunch of like progressives running around, you know, the country. I just want to live in a country where we could be, where we could have civil dialogue, right? So like if you, if, if, if a conservative Republican, by the way, I've had these conversations that have went absolutely well, believe it or not, where when you are face to face with people, because the internet is a very dangerous place, it allows you, it allows for anonymity, and it allows for a type of courage that you people do not have in real life when they are face to face with you. And so I've experienced that 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 ugly of the internet. But when I've been in spaces with people in real life, like at a college campus where people or where the young Republicans are really upset that I came to their school. And being able to have a dialogue and say, hey, what is it about what I believe that you don't agree with? And let's talk about it. Like, don't be angry about something without understanding where I'm coming from, because I also want to know where you're coming from. And these conversations, Rob, are transformational, and I'm always ready to have them. Some people in the movement actually criticize me and say, why are you wasting your time? I said, you know what? If I talk to 10 conservatives and I can get one to say, you know what? I'm not sure if I agree with you yet, but at least I can respect you. That's all I need. I just want I want to live in a country where we could have diverse points of views and I don't have to worry about someone's going to assassinate me because you don't agree with me or that I'm going to be doxxed on the Internet because you don't agree with me. Doxxed for folks that don't know means that people put your personal information on the Internet. And and I am willing to have those conversations. And I think if more of us are willing, it's one of the things I advised women at the Women's March. Many folks know that a lot of the women we organized with were white women. Um, and many of them were coming to us almost as an act of rebellion. You know, their husbands voted for Trump, their fathers voted for Trump. They, a lot of them did come from conservative families and they were, you know, like so horrified by this idea that Donald Trump had become the president. And one time, you know, we had this really courageous conversation where I said to them, you know, of course, be, having you here in the movement is wonderful. And of course, you know, expanding our movement, expanding more people in the movement is what we need. Um, and, and of course, solid being in solidarity with black people and other communities that you all are not a, are not from. But I said, you know what the best form of solidarity is? What's the what's the what we really need you to do is we need you to go do this work in your own communities, because only people you love will listen to you before they listen to me. And so what kind of conversations or courageous conversation are you willing to have with your father, with your grandma, with your uncle, with your cousin, with your brother um, and being able to give them the tools. Right. And the kind of talking points to be able to debate issues like raising the wage, um, the idea of immigrants being able to have an earned pathway to citizenship, this idea around women's rights and women's reproductive rights. How do you talk to conservatives, especially those who are religiously conservative about things like health care and women's reproductive health care? And that's what we told them. That's what we need people to do. I always say to people, if you're a good organizer, I know that by your family, right? How have you been able to impact and influence those that you love the most? And if more of us did that and more of us were able to have those courageous conversations, I think we would be in a better place, Rob. I'm watching our time. It's fine. But if I can't help asking, when you're having those conversations, one pitfall I, 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 I fall into is this idea that uh, facts aren't facts uh, on all sides anymore. Uh, they come back with, you know, QAnon nonsense or the things yeah, like, how do we continue this conversation? You're saying this guy is, um, is, is a different color than, than it is. Um, there's no longer a place where we can come together and say, okay, well, because we both agree of the facts, now we can, we can hash this out. I'm talking about reality and you're talking nonsense. That's right. Have that faith that you're going to get there. How do you, how do you overcome that? So I will say this, Rob, I think I should have made this disclaimer. Um, there's certain people that I don't engage at all. There's a line for them. You know, I don't engage um, outright bigots, you know, anti-Semites, neo-Nazis, um, these canon type folks. Like those are not the people I'm trying to convince. I'm trying to convince, you know, 
you know, a, a, a middle-aged white woman who grew up in a conservative Christian family, you know, who someone told her that the immigrants came to take her jobs and to take jobs from, you know, people like her and her children, you know, and really getting people to go to the kind of root of why they feel the way that they feel, you know, or, or women who, or people who talk to me about, for example, legalization of marijuana, and they're so horrified by it. They think that I'm like, yo, give everybody drugs, get the kids on drugs, you know, and being able to explain that legalization for marijuana is more a, it's a criminal justice issue and it's not really about marijuana, right? And being able to take people through that journey, right? Of what it means to legalize marijuana. Marijuana is easily accessible anywhere in the country and any one of your children can figure out how to get it. The idea here is that there are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in our incarceration system who are there, who have their whole lives destroyed over small, you know, doses of marijuana over the years. And now they're, now we're saying, now we're legalizing it in a lot of states and now these people are still criminalized. So criminal, being able to, to get people to really understand why we're pushing for these issues. Um, when we talk about immigration and people tell me, oh, the immigrants came and I say to people, do you know that immigrants pay taxes? Do you know that immigrants pay sales tax? Do you know that immigrants have ITIN numbers where they're also paying taxes like everybody else? But guess what? They benefit zero from that. At least we are able in the future to get a return on our taxes that we paid in the forms of Social Security and others. But guess what? Immigrants are helping to pay the Social Security of today. And people don't believe, they're like, what do you mean? The immigrants pay tax. I said, yeah, don't you go to the stores and pay sales tax? Yes. Well, guess what? When immigrants make purchases too, they're also paying sales taxes. And being able to, again, just kind of dispel some information. And I've had a lot of moments where Rob people would say, oh, I never thought about that. Oh, I didn't think about that. Or when I talk about things like, you know, um, even things that are very controversial around, you know, thinking about, you know, raising, like, for example, in New York, New York and North Carolina, were the only two states in America, where we convicted 16 year olds as adults, right. And then we basically ran a campaign in New York called raise the age. And eventually, you know, that passed and, you know, with some limitations, but it passed, just being able to talk to people about the cost of incarceration, like when people worry about their taxes, I'm like, do you know that it costs upwards of $150,000 in some states per year to house an inmate, feed them, give, you know, all the resources that come with being, I mean, not that they're great resources, but the fact that you're just holding someone incarcerated for a year costs a lot of money. It's less than giving people access to a college education. Um, it's less than giving them alternative services like mental health services, substance abuse services, and others. Obviously not for people who committed egregious crimes, but crimes that are nonviolent. There's no reason why nonviolent people should be kept in a prison when there are uh, so many other resources that we could help rehabilitate them to bring them back into community where they could be productive members of society. And people are, don't know these things, Rob. And I say to people, some of us have to be invested in making sure that this information gets out. So to be clear, I'm not trying to convince the super outright opposition. I'm trying to get to the people in the middle. And there's a lot of people, even Christians, where I get to talk to them about things like abortion and stuff. I'm Muslim. So they believe it or not, I come with a little credibility because they're like, don't your people think that that's crazy? Or even when I talk about issues of LGBTQ rights, I say to people, listen, it's not about what you believe or it's about what your faith says. You believe whatever you want. You live in America. America is the land of religious freedom. But we have to all agree that everyone, including LGBTQ plus people, should live safely in our country, that they should be able to have access to jobs and access to health care in the same way that many of us do, and that we should not be in the business of stripping anyone of their basic rights. And at some point, people are like, yeah, like you, we lose nothing. Um, when we are being kind and compassionate to people, regardless of what people believe in their Bible or their Torah or their Quran. And I think if we all kind of thought in that way, we'd live in a better place. Um, and I think I think people, generally speaking, when you speak, speak to them in, with respect, give them an opportunity to share, you kind of share without debate. You know, everybody wants to go in and tell the right thing. Like, I'm right, you're wrong. I don't tell people they're wrong. I take them on a journey to get them to see for themselves that they may not be believing the right thing without having to immediately label them as you're wrong or you know what, you believe that, guess what, you're racist. The minute you tell someone you're racist, Rob, it all goes downhill from there because no one wants to believe that they're racist or homophobic or Islamophobic or anti-Semitic or being able to take people on a journey of education. Some people will reject it, Rob. And I've definitely had those experiences, but most often people are willing to listen. And I'm going to talk to the people willing to listen. 
I'm watching our, our time fly by. I've got two questions left for you, and, and, and we'll call it a day. This has just been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being so generous uh, with your Thank time. You, uh, I'm going to follow it up with a question that the esteemed audience thinks I'm going to chicken out because it's you, but nope, I ask mm -hmm. everybody who comes on the show. Uh, Linda Sarsour, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? Not in real life, I haven't. I don't know if that makes me lucky or unlucky. What I want, if because you're going to be around at least another 38 years doing organizing, I need you to get some organization in the UFO movement. Let's get some disclosure, but that's a whole other time. <laughs> Maybe uh, one day I'll, I'll, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> right at some point, we gotta we gotta take this serious. The government's come right out and disclosed, and we were in the middle of a uh, pandemic and everything else. I'm like, no, we don't have time for that now. But now that things are coming down a little bit, wait a minute, go back. back on that about the flying saucers? That's another conversation. <laughs> Um, for today, for everybody who's watching or listening to us now, if they could do change just one behavior, do just one thing that would go toward making the world a better place, what would you tell them to do? It's very simple, Rob. Get to know one another. I think we got into this age of our phones, of being behind screens, that we don't do the basic things like, does everybody know who their next door neighbor is? Like, do you know who they are? Do they know your name? Do they have your phone number? For people who work in companies where you're at a cubicle all day, do you know the person in the cubicle next to you or maybe four cubicles down? So I say to people all the time, if we ever get into a situation um, in this country, a bad one, you know, we can't protect one another if we don't know one another. So I recommend that you take the time this week to say, okay, who's the fellow classmate that's sitting next to me in my chemistry class that I haven't really engaged in a conversation? Or who's the new neighbor three doors down from me that just moved in two months ago that I still haven't met? Or who's that guy that I always pass by that's like three cubicles down from me? I, I don't even know what the guy's name is. Find out what that guy's name is. And that's for me the most powerful tool of organizing it's just getting to know people. That's literally what an organizer does. I literally 15 minute conversations. I want to know you. I want to know what your aspirations are. I want to know where you come from. And just knowing those very basic things about you, like your name, where you came from. And, you know, people will say, oh, I'm from originally from like, you know, Fisher, Indiana, or I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. That tells a lot about uh, a person. Like that's a very important thing for someone to tell you. And then just saying like, hey, like, why are you here? Like, you know, whether it's a person that moved in your neighborhood, whether it's a person that works at your company, it's a very powerful tool that we're not using. And I think the, the digital era has really made us um, disconnected in ways that I think are not healthy. So get to know someone. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? For uh, as long as Twitter is gonna be around. Yeah, oh. I don't know how long <laughs> I don't know how long Twitter is going to be around, but for the time being, I am at I'm on all social media platforms. Um, El Sarsour on Twitter, El Sarsour on Instagram, which is just my first initial and last name. Um, on my Facebook page, even my personal one is public, so I write a lot of you know things there as well. Um, I'm also just recently got on TikTok. Um, I'm not a good TikToker yet, but I'm Linda Sarsour on TikTok. So, um, you know, engage me, DM me, um, and hopefully we'll find a way to have a good conversation. And of course, get my book, um, which is available where all books are sold. We're in this together, available right now. Get your copy, esteemed audience. While you're at it, download your free copy of Medica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. At least one of these books will change your life. Uh, <laughs> check out more interviews, almost as good as this one, at middlegradeninja.com. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.